When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. I want you to know something. I had a feeling you'd be like this. <laughs> I love Utah. That was great. It's great. Uh, welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Aaron Ryan. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tag Romney. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Dan Pfeiffer. <laughs> You could be a Romney. Don't say that. Shit. <laughs> you could be Rafalka. <laughs> Later in the show, we'll talk to Stacey Stanford from the Utah Health Policy Project. But first, let's get to the news. Yeah. What yeah, did you think was going to happen? What did you think was going to happen? In a week where Trump was formally condemned by the House for telling four congresswomen of color to leave America, support for impeachment is growing. On Wednesday, on Wednesday, a record 95 Democrats voted to move forward on an impeachment resolution introduced by Representative Al Green of Texas. The House also voted to hold Trump's Attorney General and the Commerce Secretary in criminal contempt of Congress for defying subpoenas about Trump's attempt to rig the census. On top of all this, new court documents released today offered more evidence of the president's role as an unindicted co-conspirator in the illegal hush money scheme that landed Michael Cohen in jail. And Robert Mueller is testifying next week. That's a lot of crimes, guys. That's a lot of crimes. <sighs> uh, let's start with Al Green's impeachment resolution, which says that Trump's racist statements have sown discord among the American people and proved him unfit to be president. Uh, Dan, what do you think of both the substance and the strategy behind that resolution? Well, the substance is definitely true, yeah. right? No, what he said was racist. Fact it has, check true, yeah. It has, it has sown discord, so fact check, correct. Um, the timing of it, I think, is unfortunate because there is, this was a day where the Democratic House was standing united against Trump's racist comments and standing united against the efforts of Trump's cabinet in William Barr and Wilbur Ross by censuring them for refusing to abide by congressional oversight. So this was supposed to be a day of unity, and then this was sort of a publicity stunt that sort of stepped on that and so disunity on that day. I think ultimately it doesn't matter that much. I don't think it's going to make us more or less likely to have about whether Trump's going to be impeached or not, but I think it, it certainly was an unfortunate distraction on a day that was supposed to send a powerful signal, not just to the country, but also to the Democratic voters who sent Congress there for accountability. Yeah. What, do you, what do you think about Trump um, basically used it to, you know, vindicate himself? <laughs> Tommy, you were talking about this yesterday. I mean, it was annoying. <laughs> it, was, it, it was a real data point he could point to, but 
Do you think he knew I, it wasn't, no, wait, it wasn't yeah. the impeachment resolution, no, but a impeachment resolution? This is the key question, John, <laughs> because there were a bunch of Trump officials talking to reporters on background saying they weren't sure if Trump realized it didn't mean that he was out of the woods. Like, they, there was some, his own staff thought he might think that impeachment is now off the table. Now, I'm sure, I'm sure they clarified it after the fact, but whatever. I mean, whatever. Trump is like the king of latching on to whatever it will take to get him through the next 15 seconds of the news cycle. He actually said as much at that racist pseudo-Nuremberg rally that he held the other day, <laughs> um, where he was like, you know, he said, like, if I had said what some of these members of the squad had said, uh, you know, they would have come for me, it would have been over. He's like, but he's like, we get through it. We always do. But, you know, I think that the, the green um, impeachment measure going down won't ultimately matter at all. Yeah. Um, so, Aaron, a few other members of Congress came out today for impeachment. Uh, Congressman Bill Pascrell of New Jersey um, said, and he had an interesting reasoning when he released a statement. He said that Trump's abuses of power, quote, have not abated but accelerated because of our failure to constrain him. What do you think of that argument? And do you think the politics of impeachment have changed over recent weeks? So first of all, let's take a moment to recognize that Bill Pascrell is now a part of the squad <laughs> because yeah. of an Onion article that was a satirical tweet that he tweeted at the members of the squad and they were like, sure, and now he's doing it. Um, like, he's like sitting at their lunch table now and they're like, right. oh, they're, no, well, no, I think they're like, yeah, it's Bill. He can hang out with us. There's always like one weird member of a clique of five people. <laughs> And he's the one that it's like, oh, yeah, that's like, so is, is that your dad? No, no, no. He just he hangs out. He's cool. He stands up for impeachment like we stand up for impeachment. Um, <laughs> we're all in this. We're all in one squad. We're going to have to change the merch the squad merch by adding. it. Um, but I think that uh, in terms of the politics of impeachment, this is something that seems to be tricky and frustrating to watch because you know, it seems like Congress is very responsive on this topic to polling, but the fact of the matter is polling doesn't determine that their job is to uphold their duty as prescribed in the Constitution, whether or not people like it. That is their job. And so it, it's nice to see, pub I think public sentiment and the sentiment of actual representatives is moving more toward impeachment, but it's a shame that it's so beholden to polling. Because it yeah. doesn't, it shouldn't be. Well, and I think, I think on a week like this is when it really hits you. Because for him to stand up there and tell, you know, uh, four women of color who are elected members of Congress to leave America. They actually won their popular votes, by the way. All of them. Did. Yeah, right. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> but it's like, for him to tell them to leave America, to see that rally where they are chanting, send her home, you know, get, like, it is you realize like, okay, Democrats don't have a ton of power right now. We can't pass legislation because we only have the House, but they do have the power to impeach him. Mm -hmm. And what Pascal is saying here is that like, his abuses have not abated but accelerated is really interesting because he's basically saying, by not doing anything, by just sitting back and watching, Donald Trump is basically saying, okay, well now I can do whatever the fuck I want because they're too afraid to impeach me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's not only that Democrats seem as though they're afraid to impeach if we're, we're following this logic, um, but it's also that Republicans are afraid to do any fucking thing at all. Right. Anything at all. Like, I'm imagining them all like going into their bathrooms, closing the door and whispering into the mirror, racism is bad. 
Like that's the extent of what they're doing. Nobody hears it, nobody sees it. They're like talking into a paper bag and sealing it up and throwing it in the garbage <laughs> when nobody's looking at them. And I, so let's not forget the. <laughs> I have this bag. whole like series of scenarios, Tommy. I will go through with you after the show. I love it. But it's just. But I think that there's a, la- a general lack of courage in general, and it's go- it's good to see more people standing yeah. up. Love it. There was a, a story in Politico that said that the... I like where this is going. <laughs> I knew you would love that. That the Democrats are moving so slow and carefully because they are trying to, you know, collect the evidence so they can win a court battle um, to try to get some of these documents. And that's why they're moving so slow that they want to be careful. Um, others have said they're doing this because they're just trying to run out the clock on impeachment. And they're trying to wait for the moment where they can say, well, now we're in the heat of a presidential campaign. Obviously, we're not going to impeach him now. And that's that. So... What do you think it is, and, you know, what should happen? <laughs> so both things can be true. It can be true that there, is, that there are important pr- procedures playing out in the courts. It can also be true that many people uh, are playing this out because they want to see impeachment go away. I think what I come down on, what I come, when you start looking at this, okay, you know, Dan's made this point that, that now Mueller is going to testify right before they all go home, uh, and they're about to, Democrats are about to hear from a lot of members, uh, their constituents, that they're angry and that they want impeachment. Um, we're running out of time. We're running out of time to actually do this. To me, I, they will start saying, if we don't start impeachment in the fall, that we, that we, why do it now? There's an election coming up. And if we don't start impeachment, the process in September... It means it can't happen before we start voting in primaries. And there's something about the image of Democrats voting to choose the person they want to face Trump, running up against Democrats trying to impeach Trump, that feels confusing to me. Uh, We have one shot to make the case against Donald Trump in impeachment. I'm starting to view the fall as a great compromise. If you're a skittish, moderate Democrat from a suburban district, uh, constantly jumping at shadows. (laughs) 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 Very antsy. Uh, Go on. You know that there there were those experiments where um, they would uh, shine a light and then shock a rat, uh, and those those rats learned resilience. Uh, They knew when the shock was coming, they knew when to hide. And then there were the rats where the light and the shock were random, and those rats just lie down and take the shocks. (laughs) <laughs> the compromise is if you believe you'd, if you don't want to be talking about impeachment in 2020 guess what the fall is the chance to do it if you believe impeachment is the moral responsibility of democrats and you fear for the country that fails to impeach a president as evil as this then the fall is the moment to do impeachment and so my view is i don't care about the courts anymore i wish we had time i wish we had time and so it's going to be incumbent on Democrats who believe we have a moral and even political responsibility to impeach this president to talk to their members uh, this summer and put pressure on them in August so that when we come back in September, it is clear that it is now or never and we cannot play this clock game anymore. Yeah. Uh, so Mueller is going to testify next week. Uh, Dan, what do you want to hear? What would you ask Mueller? What, what do you want to hear from him? And where should our expectations be, also, I should ask? Like, <laughs> Whenever there's a lowering expectation question, it comes to me. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> I, know, I know you'll be dark for us. I mean, Mueller has told us, he's been pretty clear, that there are gonna be no, there's going to be no news here, right? He, everything he has to say, he put in the report. And I think it's important for the members of Congress who are doing this 
to not try to be like the lawyer from A Few Good Men and try to get a <laughs> like a code red moment out of of it. Like what is will be really effective is just getting Mueller to in a coordinated way. I should have say, charged him. <laughs> say say it out loud. Say out loud on camera for the nation to see exactly what he wrote in that report. Yeah, to, they could just say, like, could you please read the executive summary yes. for the next two hours? Like, I, like, we, like he's not going to say bad stuff about Bill Barr. He's not going to say that Trump should be indicted. He's going to be super careful. Let's just get him to say what he knows because more people see the movie than read the book. So if you can get him to get, do a live reading of the Mueller report out there, I think that would have real value in explaining to the country just what this president did. <laughs> I mean, and, like, and, and as is often the case... There are those pedants who say that the book was better. <laughs> oh, wow, yes, but Jurassic Park, the book, now that's, now that's a story. <laughs> honestly, if that were, a very good book. Honestly, if that were an audio book, like a file, I would walk down the aisle to that. Robert Mueller reading the Mueller report. I mean, even if you just asked Robert Mueller, um, was there substantial evidence that the president obstructed justice. He's going to say yes, because he said so right. in the report. Like, did, just those moments on television will be a big deal. Did you exonerate the president, yes or no? No. Did you, did you, the president says you said there was no collusion. Is that true, yes or no? Like, there's very easy factual things to get him on the record that will look incredibly damning for Donald Trump. Yeah, right. why not? Well, Hopefully, now, all of us should lower our expectations. <laughs> get those expectations lower. Because Jim Comey issues a report about a, a, a president or presidential candidate. That motherfucker sprints to the microphones. Bobby Mueller, he's hanging back. Bobby 3-6. Um, <laughs> I just hope that all of the Democrats on the committee coordinate they their fucking they questions. They will not. The biggest problem with congressional hearings is members of Congress. <laughs> I just... Okay. I just think, like, in general, the fewer words in Mueller's answers, the better. Mm. Because there can't be any wishy-washiness, there can't be any slipperiness on this. Like, if we have a video of Mueller saying yes or no, that's more powerful than him saying, like, kind of wavering. Square jaw, one word. Exactly. Yeah. I guess, Cut it in half. I guess one more tactical thing that would be important for Democrats to get out is to have Mueller, once again, like he did in his press conference, elucidate the threat to our elections in 2020. Because we still need to put pressure on Congress and the administration to actually do something to protect us, or at least have the American people know that Donald Trump is leaving the door open for Putin to walk through. So, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> um, <laughs> the Republicans. That's a good one. What are the Republicans going to ask him? They're like, oh, why, they're, are, oh, why, are, know. why are diamond and silk being silenced? Dirty <laughs> dossier, you know, wasn't, wasn't there a deep state coup? Did, let's talk about the lovers, you know, and their oh, texts. No. All of that bullshit. I'm all actually of the Hannity's, all of it's going to come up. I'm, a, I'm eager to see that because um, Robert Mueller's just magnificent square jaw is going to cut through that stuff like butter. <laughs> like, that, that guy is unruffleable. Unruffleable. Cannot be ruffled. <laughs> so, Lovett, you started talking about this, but we have Mueller's testimony will be next week, and then they are going to all leave for August recess. What, so and you know what? They deserve it, too. <laughs> <laughs> they have little worked for R nearly two weeks. Well-earned. Well-earned. <laughs> yes. um, what does that do to the momentum behind impeachment that has been growing with both this week and uh, you know, presumably with Mueller's testimony? Well, I think the good news is I do not believe the momentum has been growing because of what's actually taking place day to day in Congress. Right. Uh, I think the, 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 uh, the recalcitrance and the obstinance of the Trump administration has been actually doing a lot of the work as has been uh, 
activism and Trump just getting worse. Um, and so so uh, it's in, I, what I said before is true. The momentum will be up to voters. It will be up to ordinary people to make clear that they are watching and that they care about this issue. I think that there's a lot of Democrats based on punditry who have convinced themselves that there are the real issues people care about and then there's process and holding Trump accountable and making clear that those are one and the same for a lot of people, that they're really paying attention uh, is important, that there's a real political price for Democrats to pay if they fail to understand how passionate the voters who elected them are about this issue. I think that it's especially true for if you have a moderate member or a member who was just elected in 2018, you know, those members are going to respond to their constituents, right? Like Katie Porter um, came out for impeachment a couple of weeks ago. She flipped a pretty Republican district in Orange County that had never sent a Democrat to Congress, you know, in decades. Um, uh, Ann Kirkpatrick in Arizona, she's from an R plus one district. You know, she came out for impeachment this week. Like they, if those representatives know that more people in their district are calling and saying, you should open an impeachment inquiry, they're gonna do it. Like, they're gonna respond to that. And so when these members go home in August, if you're a Democrat and you're in one, or an independent or whatever, and you're in one of these districts, and your member is still on the fence, you should go to those town halls and tell them that they should do this. Because what they say right now is, oh, none of my constituents care about this, they care about healthcare, they care about other issues, but they don't really mind about impeachment, so I'm not doing anything. Pressure will work on these Democrats. Yeah, there's a, um, there was a, there, there was a, uh, Greg Sargent uh, looked at the polling and, and, and it was actually really, I think, an important piece of this, which is uh, the new Democrats, the Democrats that helped give us the House majority, tend to be from more conservative districts than a lot of the Democrats who have been in the House for a long time. Oh, yeah. So a lot of these, uh, these people that we need to convince, they are the new House majority that act that Democrats, young Democrats, passionate people that knocked on doors and got out, that helped elect. These are the people that are actually in the most, that view themselves as being in the most difficult position. That's all. And I think, like, there's two ways to think about it. It's like we're at 88, I think, or whatever it was you said, and we got to get to half of the 200-some Democrats we have. That seems like a long way to go. But there's a, there's a shortcut here. And if I was advising people on how to think about pressuring Democrats to move an impeachment, it is you only need a majority of the Judiciary Committee. Right. And we are right now six votes away from a majority of the House Judiciary Committee. And so if you're like, as deserved or cathartic as it may be to just tweet anger at Nancy Pelosi, the more effective way to do this is to organize in the districts, but also focus on these members of the Judiciary Committee, because you, that will be the pressure where it will be almost impossible, I think, for Nancy Pelosi to say no. The majority of the Committee of Jurisdiction is for opening impeachment inquiry. This is incredibly important because Jerry Nadler, who is the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, it would be his committee that opens the impeachment inquiry. He has been non-committal on impeachment up until now, partly because he's in Democratic leadership. He doesn't want to piss off Nancy Pelosi. During the Al Green vote, Jerry Nadler was one of the ones who voted to move forward on the impeachment resolution, um, which was a big deal. So if you asked him today, he'd probably still say, oh, I still want the investigations to continue. But like, I think Jerry Nadler wants to do this. Jerry Nadler absolutely wants to do this because <laughs> Donald Trump used to call him Fat Jerry. <laughs> Donald Trump was super mean to him for a really long time and I don't blame him for holding a grudge. And I Jerry's think it's, revenge. Yeah, I think, I think Jerry's <laughs> Jerry revenge. Jerry strikes back. <laughs> Get a call, a Jew from Manhattan fat and he's not going to remember? <laughs> Let's go, Jerry. <laughs> the, uh, the other thing too I'd say too, like it, getting to a majority is hard, but uh, if this starts to look like it's going to happen, they will all fall in line. This will, this will be like a waterfall. I just want to say one more thing about the politics. It's important because I, 
like when listening to your opening here talking about the rally and Trump being involved in a criminal conspiracy to defraud the, the voting public, essentially, and you hear all the things that happen every day and just in the idea that Trump can say these things about these congressmen and, and his party's only fine with it and we're having these Nuremberg rallies in North Carolina, it like, it kind of, it makes me very worried that our democratic leaders are numb to the scale of the stakes in this election, yeah. right? And that you think like that we are, we're at a we're at an actual crossroads for who we, who we want to be as a country. And when and you can't, and the way to defeat what, what is happening here is not running poll tested, calculated campaigns. It's a grassroots movement of millions of Americans. And you do that not by being small and cautious, you do being big and brave. And if what happens, is, and that is, I think is really important is everyone talks about the lessons of 2018. It's like we ignored Trump and we talked about healthcare and we did this. The true lesson is that after the election, millions of people started knocking on doors the next day and showing up at marches. And, they, and if we don't match that enthusiasm in 2020, we will lose. Yeah, no, I, it's like, you have, instead of, you have to put down the poll and ask yourself like what you feel in your gut about this. And it's like, does this feel like normal politics or does this feel like something different and scary? And I think after this week, you look at it and say, you know, we could be headed in a pretty, in a, to a pretty dark place. Look, I, if we I'm, don't do I'm swayed by that moral argument, but I've been a hack about this and I am now fully convinced that the politics of impeachment are better than the politics of whatever the hell has been happening. Well, I was yeah. Because I, like, I don't, we, we, we talked about this the other night, but I was very nervous about the Democratic Party being completely divided and this things going south and impeachment inquiry and the utter lack of oversight and accountability from the House when we control Congress is leading a bunch of people who voted to think, why did I care? Why did I try so hard? And if we don't let people know that there is a reward that comes from working your ass off to vote for people and get them to elected office, then why will they do it again? Well, it's just from a pure... <laughs> From a pure political calculus, too, like the House of Representatives voted to condemn Donald Trump's racism this week with a resolution. Like, what is a re resolution? Has no teeth, right? It's just a pass resolution. Does anyone think that Donald Trump had a good week this week? No, he goes crazy every time something Donald happens. Donald Trump thinks that Donald Trump had a good week. This <laughs> well, he, do, yeah, he he just he knocked it out of the park again today, Donald. But the uh, <laughs> but like, does anyone think the politics of what happened this week? They were, were not like good. <laughs> the fact that Republicans today had to send a message to Trump to stop saying some of the things he's been saying, I think, are not good for him. The fact that re four Republicans did join in the resolution, it's not nothing. It's not zero. Um, and, it, and so I think that does matter. And also just in. I do think it's worth remembering too, and this is the darkest arg argument to me for impeachment. I don't want to look back yeah. at having not done it, of not having used this power at this critical juncture and wondering if we should have done more. We have to do everything we can now, yep. I agree win or that. lose. I agree with that. Now it's time for OK Stop. We'll roll a clip and the panel can say OK Stop at any point to comment. High school debate, it's shaped some of America's sharpest minds to use logic and reason and unleash it on the world's problems. Oprah Winfrey, Elizabeth Warren, Ben Shapiro. <laughs> uh, anyway, Ben took a break from cosplaying as America's little brother in his rebellious conservative phase because his mom left his dad for a guy she met canvassing for Obama to share... <laughs> to, to, share <laughs> to share his thoughts on Bond. 
James Bond. <laughs> Let's watch. Say that there's a beautiful woman who is playing James Bond, like Lashana Lynch. Let's say it. And now she wants to seduce the most handsome man. Is that in any way difficult? Bond is about the guns and the girls. When it comes to the seduction of women, there is a very, very large difference okay, stop. between a... It's hard, it's hard to hear and to watch. <laughs> Remember that guy, the pickup artist, Mysterio, who had the hat and the big earrings, and he was all about negging women and making them feel bad, and that's how you got a date? This entire analysis is derived from reading that guy's book. <laughs> yeah, also, like, I'm really confused <laughs> about him being upset that he has to look at a beautiful woman on screen like if as as an uh, as an uh, like a person who claims to be a heterosexual man wouldn't that be something that you would prefer to watch like when you watch porn do you just like zoom in on the one corner where like the guy's chest is <laughs> Tommy she was actually directing it at you <laughs> That's a direct question to you Tommy <laughs> Answer the question, Tommy. <laughs> Roll the clip. <laughs> and a man. I'm not even going to get into the, the lesbian aspect of this because... Okay, stop. I don't know what? Where did the le what is he talking about? Where did the lesbian aspect so, of this come in? So let's, I, I, let's take a part of this seriously, which is the idea that part of what is central to James Bond's character is that he is a man whose uh, charisma, handsomeness, and... Spy ability uh, <laughs> gives him incredible uh, seduction abilities uh, over uh, women, and that that is part of his appeal. But that a beautiful woman would not have to work as hard to seduce a man. So, barring a female 007 being a lesbian, using logic, she will not have to show as much prowess and as much ability to seduce men, and therefore will have lost some of what is central to oh the character God. of James really? Bond. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Yeah. But, I mean, in the serious part here. Things must be going pretty fucking well for you if the greatest threat that you can find <laughs> is losing James Bond as your male idol. <laughs> character is going to be a lesbian. Let's assume that she's not for a second. Let's assume Let's. that she is just <laughs> black female James Bond, which means that she's betting the most handsome men. That is not in any way a wish fulfillment fantasy for the men who typically watch the Bond films. Okay, stop. Okay, stop. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what? Maybe a wish fulfillment fantasy for women who watch Bond films is to see a black female James Bond. Maybe men don't all watch James Bond for wish fulfillment fantasies Ew. also. Take it back, John. <laughs> what do you, like, what do you think I'm watching? Like gadgets. If you think I'm watching Daniel Craig at James Bond because I'm in love with Daniel Craig truly, deeply, actually, for real, in love with him, shame on you. <laughs> I want to see if the guy he thinks is his friend is not really his friend, but his enemy. You know? That's what I'm there for, the plot <laughs> twists. I'm there for Q. Q and the gadgets. That's all I want. I watch James Bond for the articles. The <laughs> chair <laughs> of the Bond audience is male. The challenge for James Bond to be completely sexist about this, okay? The challenge for okay, James Bond is... What? You're going to be sexist about... What? Hey, here comes the sexist. Oh, my God. Well, let me gird my loins for Ben Shapiro <laughs> being a sexist little elf 
<laughs> screaming into a microphone at 1.5 speed somehow all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Conquest, right? That's obviously been part of the trope of the series, is this conquest-driven mentality by James Bond. Now they're trying to make it as though he has to be in a relationship every movie because they're trying to make it as though he is not Okay, stop. Like, if this is what he thinks, like, he's he's denigrating relationships because <laughs> he wants James Bond to have more, it's more aspirational to have... James Bond get to fuck around? Why doesn't James Bond have more middle sex? Um, what? Understood. Okay, but that was always the appeal of Bond, is in every movie he was going to somehow seduce the most beautiful woman in the movie into bed with him. And this is what made him an idol to millions of men, who of course would like to seduce beautiful women, but are incapable of doing so. Because there's an actual challenge Okay, stop. A lot of projection there. A lot of projection there. This is great when they tell him themselves at the very end like that. You know, though, I... I, that, I was, was, that was better than I thought. I, I was interested in this clip. You know... The actual substantive important thing to me about this conversation about whether a 007 can be a black woman is like the qualities that we view as uh, irreducible in a character, right? Like nobody was bothered when Daniel Craig went, went up, sorry, <laughs> it's on the mind, uh, when, when James Bond went from being a brunette to a blonde, right? That's obviously not essential to the character. And people, you know, in America, we certainly didn't care that James Bond had been Scottish and then went to, I don't know, Welsh or whoever the fuck, it doesn't matter to us. It's all, just, it's all just a bunch of people we beat in a war once, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> but, but, but he's actually, I think, revealing something important, which is there, there are a lot of men who might have trouble seeing a woman as a character through which they could have a fantasy, that they could put themselves in her shoes and experience the world through her eyes and live vicariously through a female character. And I don't think that that's... I think it's wrong to be angry that you don't get to do that automatically, but I, don't, but I do think it's worth remembering that like, that is the salience of gender that is so important for so many people that actually making a Bond character female would do a lot to help fix. It's right. also the con- I, I also wanted to add um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who is from Fleabag, is writing the new James Bond. And if she sees this, my prayer to the gods is that she opens James Bond with a scene of a little tiny right-wing pundit yelling about a black female superhero getting his ass kicked. That's a great idea. And that's okay, stop. All right, let's talk about 2020. Uh, just minutes ago, CNN conducted a live NBA lottery-style drawing to determine the candidate lineup for the second set of Democratic primary debates to be moderated by Anderson Cooper in Detroit on July 30th and 31st. On the first night, on the first night, we have Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg... Okay, we're not going to be able to do this for all the candidates. <laughs> just let me say the names. We know you have favorites. On the first night, we have Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, Better O'Rourke, Amy Klobuchar, Tim Ryan, John Hickenlooper, Marion Williamson, John Delaney, and Steve Bullock. On the second night, we have Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Julian Castro, Andrew Yang, Cory Booker, Jay Inslee, Kirsten, Gillibrand, Tulsi Gabbard, Michael Bennett, and Bill de Blasio. <laughs> Clap for Bill de Blasio. There you go. There you go. Um, CNN Dante? also announced some new rules for this next debate. There will be no show of hands or one word down the line questions. There you go. And a candidate who consistently interrupts will have his or her time reduced. Watch Eat out. Eat shit, John Delaney. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, 
let's start with the drawing itself, since we had a great time backstage watching the drawing. Uh, how do we think CNN handled the process this time? Improvement over NBC? Tommy, we'll start with you. No. <laughs> I think that ultimately the, the result was good. But if you guys didn't watch this, you probably didn't because you were getting nagged in line. Uh, they drew one group, then they went to break. Then they drew the second tier, and then they went to break. And then they came back and subjected us to 15 minutes of punditry about what was going to happen next when they controlled our ability to know what was going to happen next. It was like it was peak cable TV making it about themselves and reminding us all the things that are wrong about cable TV. Now, ultimately, I think this will be an interesting debate, especially the second night. There was an... There was uh, multiple camera angles on the boxes that they drew the names out of, including an overhead cam down into the box, <laughs> to which the, 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 the three different people they had drawn from the box said, I can't see into the box right now, but you can from the overhead cam. I just thought the most surreal aspect of it was like what Tommy mentioned, where they had control about what was going to happen next, and they were trying to like analyze their future decision. It's like if I woke up in the morning... <laughs> and like sat and looked at my closet and I was like, what is she gonna wear? Uh, well, if she picks this, th and then instead of just like picking out my Aaron outfit. Aaron versus the romper. Yeah, just, <laughs> just pick just your fucking outfit. Wear. They were I'm treating it like it was fucking, like they were waiting for the returns from Palm Beach. But, but they, they controlled the returns. They, they, they had the returns, they're in charge. They got their, their, their uh, with their, nine pundits on stage, nine. I mean, there are sort of two ways to look about this. One is like, who gives a shit, right? Like, <laughs> cable now in this day and age is micro-targeted to a group of mostly older political junkies. Like, they, that's who they, that's who, that's who they're, they're not trying to inform the public per se, other than in big news moments, they're just doing narrating politics for a group of political junkies. And so in that sense, you don't care. But on the sense of it, like, there is another level where I do think it does sort of matter, which is, We've been on this arc for a while now. It's about the trivialization of politics, right? We cover it like sports. And now we're doing basically the NBA draft lottery. And it, there is a connection, not a direct connection, but there is at least, I guess, a relationship between treating politics this way and having a reality TV star who has no business doing the job as president. Those things are not unrelated. No. There was a, there, there was a good intention underlying some of this, which was to be radically transparent about how the various people ended up on stage, but they milked that good intention for an hour of catheter ads or whatever else <laughs> they could throw on TV. Can I make a serious point about it too, which is, this is it. This is what cable news will be like for the next, uh, for the next year and a half. We can't really change it. We can work the roughs, and I, there's some value in doing that, though I think trying to badger the New York Times is changing headlines is, has diminishing value. Um, Part of this is it's, incum it's incumbent upon our candidates to choose where they play the game and choose where they call out the game. You know, Chuck Todd, I I'm going to repeat this forever, but Chuck Todd telling everybody to raise their hand, I don't think that that was a good way to elucidate the most important issues facing the country. But they all went along with it. And, and one thing I would like to see the candidates do more is pick fights with the refs. Like, I think that that was a moment for a candidate to say, hold on a second, Chuck, this is no way to run. This is no way to run a milk stand or what have you. Like, I, the Democratic Party, I think, is a little bit too comfortable with handing over this control to the uh, networks, but the candidates don't have to go along with it. They can make moments by not just fighting with each other, by, by calling out the moments where the media is treating it too much like a sport. <laughs> Mary not Williamson tackled John King yeah. on the stage. <laughs> <and trying. laughs> like, she would hug him. Yeah, she, she would, would hug, hug him. him. She would hug you him. You want a little more any, enemy of the people vibe? I, I, give me 3%. Listen, give me... Th give me th <laughs> no, I don't want enemy of the people, but, but hey, this is fucking dumb. 
and having the audience applaud is not bad for any of those candidates. I mean, I think part of the reason why it's dangerous is that I think public interest in elections and in democracy is so fragile and fleeting, especially given what we have right now. Like, it's so hard to get people excited. It's so hard to get people to participate. And to have CNN just milk it into an hour that is a waste of time for everybody is a really derel- it's a it's a dereliction of duty corporate greed and it's and it's it's, it's gross the media 100%. shouldn't be doing well, that well that's the i mean that is the ultimate point which is our media is run by corporations they are businesses with payrolls and bottom lines and investors and they so like you we have to disabuse ourselves of the notion that they are in it only for the democracy right they have they are a business and we have to understand their motives that way and, and this is that. good business for cnn cnn was in the shitter before the 2016 election they were struggling mightily and they benefit all cable has been cable was going like this and then trump happened and that doesn't mean that i think they are for trump i don't actually think that but it that the, the Trump made politics interesting, and that is keeping cable afloat. And we just have to understand that. One important distinction, the journalists who had to do that drawing today are doing their jobs. I bet they found it embarrassing. We respect them. We like them. They got a bunch of bosses who work for some publicly traded company that are telling them to do this. And, and it's also worth remembering, too, that like, this is, there's some nuance here in that CNN, in, along with doing this NBA draft, which, again, this is the first NBA draft I've seen, and <laughs> I can't believe this is what all the fuss is about. <laughs> Uh, uh, <laughs> um, CNN has done some of the most substantive and serious town halls and, and debates. I thought when they had Ted Cruz debating Bernie Sanders about really important issues, like the anchors at CNN have had some of the most compelling confrontations with Trump officials. Um, they've run these incredibly valuable town halls that allowed Pete Buttigieg to become a serious candidate. So I, I do think that, that Dan's there's... interview. What? Yeah. yeah that was Dan's interview. And Dan's interview, yes. obviously, obviously Dan, Dan, Dan gave him the, the Buddha bump. But the uh, <laughs> so all, all that's a way of saying is that you know CNN contains multitudes. You get it. Yeah, I think that, like this is I think this is an important point to be totally fair is that stuff pays for the town halls, right? Yeah. Because CNN, to their credit, and MSNBC is doing a similar thing, is yes, giving a town hall to Kamala Harris and getting a lot of viewers that's good for everyone, right? Giving a town hall to Steve Bullock or John Hickenlooper. That is not, that's not good TV, it's not good ratings, but they gave it to everyone, and you got to pay for that somehow, right? Yeah. So this is a good time to mention that during the final tier draw, <laughs> uh, when they selected the four top candidates and which <laughs> nights they'd be in, uh, everyone on this stage was literally cheering <laughs> we were <clapping> backstage, <laughs> yeah. glued to the television set. It was good TV. It, it was, was good great TV. TV. It was great. So let's talk about, let's actually talk about the <laughs> substance of that. We, every principle we had was out the window. It was the end of Animal Farm. We were pigs <laughs> at that fucking table. Love it was like, love it's like, I'm going to go out on that stage and give CNN a piece of my, yes, Joe Biden. <laughs> <laughs> Wednesday. Wednesday. <laughs> so um, what, what campaigns of the top campaigns, we don't have to go through all 30,000 people running for president. The top campaigns, who do you think was happy with the drawing and, and where they ended up, and who do you think's unhappy? Dan, you want to? I think Joe Biden is probably not happy. <laughs> because it's a, it's a rematch with Kamala. It's Harris. a rematch with Kamala, which every media outlet is happy about. But it's awesome. he's also on there with Cory Booker, yep. who has been fighting with Biden about. I think rightly criticizing Biden about his comments about segregationists. He, Julian Castro, who has proven to be very aggressive in the last debate, I think has been coming after Biden. Bill and Biden, Biden is on Biden's stage. Biden and Warren are the only two who have qualified for the September debate. So 
all these other people are in a do or die situation where they have to have a moment to propel their candidacy or it will be for all, over for all intents and purposes in a month. Biden and Harris. Biden and Harris, the only two. Yes, Biden and Harris, the only two who have done that. So there are going to be a lot of desperate people there taking swings, and the person they're going to take a swing at is going to be Biden. But Dan, can I ask you a question? Why is it that it seems as though there is there are candidates for whom there is a cost to go after, and there's, a can, there's candidates where it seems like there's lower cost? Like, it seems like in the first debate there was low cost to attacking Beto. We have this instinct that there will be low cost to going after Biden. Why is it less seen as sort of low risk to attack Joe Biden? Well, I think if you were trying to get from 0% to 2%, there is low cost going after Biden. If you were trying to generate enough online attention to raise more donors, there's zero cost going after Biden. But for all of the shit that Biden gets among the online left, some of which is very deserved, he is the most popular person on that stage by far. There is a massive amount of goodwill among Democratic voters for him. So if you're trying to go from 15 to 20, there may be cost of going after Biden. And there may end up over time, if, if Kamala Harris and Biden go, go after each other repeatedly, there may be cost to Kamala for doing that over time. But if you're going from zero to two, you, got, you have nothing to lose, right? That's where the money is. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Aaron, what do you think about Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren being together on the oh, first man. night? <laughs> I feel like a lot of white college professor couples will have a difficult night. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think that, I mean, I was going to say on a serious note, but I am, I am very serious about that. There's going to be an English lit and history are going to be the Middlebury campus. They're going to be in separate caftans that night. Um, I think that, uh, in like, see, why don't you fucking make the quinoa? Um, I think, I think that seeing Warren and Sanders on the stage will be interesting, but I do not think that Sanders is going to go after Warren. He might ask her to clarify some things, but I think that to me, Warren, and maybe this is just because as a candidate, I really like her. She seems sort of, uh, she cares so much as she seems kind of bulletproof to me because no matter what it is that she says and what she believes, she's, she's done the research. She knows what she's talking about. There's no way for her to get tripped up on duplicity. I think Sanders will probably not really know what to do with her. And I don't think that Warren is going to go after Sanders either. So I think it'll be at the end of the night that professor couple will be getting along again. Yeah. Well, so the, the interesting thing is, and this was one of the funny parts of the CNN coverage, is before they pick Sanders and Warren for that night, they have the rest of the candidates, and they spend five minutes being like, well, this first night is the moderate candidate night, because they're all very moderate candidates, and it's going to be this debate about the center of the party. And then they were like, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders. And they're like, oh, I guess not. All <laughs> oh, um, oh right, you hadn't picked them all. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. So I sort of wonder, but it, I do think that first night could be a more congenial affair because you have Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, who I agree with you, don't really have incentives to go after each other. And then you have Pete Buttigieg and Beto O'Rourke and all these other people who I don't, I don't see them all trying to mix it up with each other as much because... But they sort of divided the debate among the confrontational people and the non-confrontational people. Right. right. Yeah, they all well, seem to be sort of non-confrontational. You could see like Tim Ryan or John Delaney thinking now is the time to, you know, attack Medicare for all as unreasonable or, you know, trying to really make it a, uh, an electability argument against Bernie Sanders, for example. Like you never know what some of these lower tier candidates are going to do. I mean, Marianne Williamson might just learn how to juggle... <laughs> right there on stage. 
And that she would can probably, move objects with her mind. That would be pretty cool. So you know, and then like Tulsi um, in Night Two, like you know, that she has an interesting opportunity. You know, she kind of um, took Tim Ryan down a peg uh, on foreign policy. It'd be interesting to see if she goes after Joe Biden on Iraq because I still think that How his many answer was Tim Ryan up. <laughs> that's uh, <laughs> brother's answer. But you know, I, I think I think Joe Biden is still in a tough place. Where you know his answer on why he supported the Iraq War is basically that well, once I got to the White House, Barack Obama put me in charge of winding that war down. And Tulsi Gabbard, having served uh, in the military, could make a compelling case for why that lack of judgment maybe means he isn't electable. So, you know, you never know what these lower tier candidates are going to do. That's yeah. basically my point. Last question on this: um, After the last debate, most of the analysis was about how maybe the Democratic Party is moving too far to the left because a lot of the candidates on stage took positions on health care and immigration that were further to the left. Um, yesterday, Rahm Emanuel, our old boss in the White House, uh, wrote a Washington Post op-ed arguing for more moderation and wrote, quote, the only two Democratic presidents to win re-election since FDR won the White House by reaching out to the center. Uh, Dan, do we think that's true of Obama? And do we think it's still true today? It is true about Obama in the sense that he won independence in 2008 by a lot. He won, there are a lot of people who voted for Obama in 2012 who voted for Trump in 2016. Quote, unquote, swing voters supported Obama. That's why he won by very large margins both times. But I think what is important to remember is Obama persuaded middle-of-the-road voters to support his agenda. He did not allow the whims of middle-of-the-road voters to change his agenda. Right. And that is, I think, the problem that it's where we get wrapped around the axle in this conversation is, yeah, there, the math is very clear. To win a 270-vote electoral college count, you have to do both. You have to excite the base, and you're going to have to persuade some people who either supported Trump in 2016 or supported an independent candidate that year. So you're going to have to, you're going to, have to persuade people, but you don't have to change what you stand for. You have, if you have a compelling message about why your agenda is good for people, you can persuade them. It doesn't mean... It, like it, persuading people in the middle does not mean moving to mushy middle centrism. Yeah, yeah it's, it's worth remembering something that we've pointed out before, that the, the debate about what it means to, to moderate that Ram is articulating feels very old to me, mm -hmm. especially when there's so much polling that shows that the so-called, you know, the, the, the positions that, that are defined against moderation, whether it's a wealth tax or a higher marginal tax rate or a Green New Deal, you know, you go through these actual issues with voters and they're quite popular, not just amongst Democrats, but among independents and even some Republicans. So, you know, the country is telling us what the center is. The D.C. has a weird and incorrect notion of what the center is. The, the center of the country is further to the left than a lot of pundits would like to admit. That's all. Yeah. It's just the... Pundits in the press can only interpret politics through the frame of ideology, which is how it's discussed in Washington, because you have liberal think tanks, conservative think tanks, and people who name themselves moderates, but that's just not how voters think about it. If that was the case, you wouldn't have had people who elected Barack Obama and Donald Trump in four, four, four years apart. Or, like, we just look at the 2018 elections, right? Yeah. Like, you know, Sherrod Brown wins in Ohio, Tammy Baldwin wins in Wisconsin, two states that Trump won. They're both very progressive senators. And then Kirsten Sinema wins in Arizona and flips that for the first time, and she's a very moderate candidate, right? Like, there's, you can't actually sort of connect ideology of candidates to the states and, the, and the, where they won, necessarily. Right. I've found that a lot of times when people write columns that are like, 
why don't Democrats reach out to the center? It is kind of coded for why don't Democrats reach out to my personal views? Yeah. And that is, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's kind of been a pattern. And, at the, and on the other hand, you know, Republicans are rarely asked to reach out to the center. You know, Donald Trump, I mean, there was, a, there was kind of a satirical column in the Times today that was like, Donald Trump, why don't you reach out toward the center? But the reality is the, per, the, the right is so far to the right. Like, I can't reach it if I lean all the way this way. Yeah. Like, the, the left has the center just by, uh, just by um, embodying goals that normal people have. It's, al- it's hilarious that we're at a... <laughs> I will, just, I will end by saying it's hilarious that we're at a place where a column about how Donald Trump should reach out to the center to win re-election is seen as satirical only. <laughs> I know, I know. David Brooks is like, why don't you call me at home? You have my cell, you have my fax. Uh, okay, time to play a game. You guys want to play a game? Utah. My name is John. We come from Los Angeles. (laughs) We know our customs must seem strange to you with jeans that cling to our legs and shorts that end before the knee. We come in peace and we have brought gifts from East and West, a New Yorker tote bag, a rentable e-scooter, and acai bowls from a restaurant one quarter owned by Jessica Biel. (laughs) We have traveled great distances on Delta, where we have status, to this foreign land of Republicans and Mormons and friggin' gnarly powder. Uh, (laughs) For we bring a message of unity and hope. Yes, we love films that end with Emma Stone wondering if her devotion to Olivia Colman was worth the cost set against 17th century Britain. And you love films that end with Chris Hemsworth, covered in dirt and baby oil, pummeling an alien robot army, set against Chris Evans also doing that. (laughs) We're so divided. Blue America and Red America, Oscar and Felix, Chris Tucker and Jackie Chan, George and Kellyanne. (laughs) But are we as different as it seems? Yes, red states may reject Democratic politicians faster than you can reject a call from a friend who texted you about helping him move three days ago, and you were avoiding it slash trying to think of how to get out of it, and boom, your phone rings, and it's like, ooh, Democrat, rejected. Uh, (laughs) But there has been a strange phenomenon in recent years, the reddest of red states embracing the bluest of blue policies, hating the sinner, but loving the sin. To explore this trend, it's time to play Democrats. Can't win with them. Actually, maybe can win without them. Weird. Why? Seems like we should figure this out. (laughs) Would someone out there like to play the game? You're you're standing up, but there's no merch on your shirt. (laughs) Oh, wait, she had it in her bag and she put it on. She wins. She gets to do it on. That was, that was good. That was impressive. That was great. That was impressive. <laughs> Hi, what's your name? Christina. And where are you from, Christina? Salt Lake City, Utah. Are you ready to play? Yes. Question one. In 2018, voters here in Utah passed a ballot measure that would expand Medicaid to 150,000 people in the state. How did the Republican legislature react? Is it A? 
by slow rolling the expansion. One legislator said, hey, Rome wasn't built in a day, and it didn't fall in a day. Rome gradually unraveled as a result of inequality, neglect of vital infrastructure, imperial overreach, corruption, and decadence. Point is, we're fine. <laughs> or is it B? With grace and humility, accepting the will of the voters. This is the right answer. No need for other clues. <laughs> or is it C? Uh, that ballot measure passed in November. The legislature meets in January. If you think I'm going to stay inside some capital when that mountain is calling my name, bro, nah. I didn't buy my ex-sister-in-law's high boy and drive all the way to Utah to expand Medicaid. I came here to legislate that gnarly fucking pow-pow. <laughs> <laughs> or is it D? Republicans in the legislature immediately broke faith with the state's voters, watered down the ballot measure, implemented a much weaker expansion in its place. D. Do you mean, which one did you think? Do you mean Dan? D. D, yeah, okay. I knew where your heart was at, I knew. <laughs> Question two. In 2018, Senator Claire McCaskill lost a close and hotly contested Senate race. But on that same night, Missouri also passed which three ballot measures? Is it A? They passed a resolution declaring both Kansas City-style and St. Louis City-style barbecue to be a, the official barbecues of the state. They established regulations to ensure only high-quality corncob pipes could bear the name Missouri. And they passed a law requiring elected officials to pronounce it Missouri. It was a big day for fans of classic Missouri stereotypes. <laughs> <laughs> or is it B? Legalizing medical marijuana, establishing independent commissions to draw congressional districts, and raising the minimum wage. Or is it C? Okay, it was pretty intense. The first ballot measure said that Sandra had to admit that the divorce was mutual. The second measure said that it was illegal for Sandra to say they're mutual friends at the club that Daryl blubbered for a solid two hours. And finally, if Sandra's going to gallivant around town with Ricardo, she can at least not go to Jerry's Fish Fry at a restaurant Daryl introduced her to. It was his place first. So is it that or is it D? <laughs> Mandatory biannual fire extinguisher checks in schools, a restructuring of retirement benefits for full-time government employees, and revised summer hours for public parks. Yeah, that's right. Sometimes good government is boring. What do you think? B. B. You, you got it. B. <laughs> Christina, you're doing so, so well. <laughs> Next question. Presidential candidates Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are calling for new rules to rein in Wall Street. Despite these candidates being called extreme by Republican politicians and many pundits, what percentage of likely voters support stronger rules and enforcement on the financial industry? Is it A? Almost 30%, which is also the percentage of a bill you'd tip if you weren't sure if there was actually something between you and your waiter, a connection. <laughs> and you're afraid to write your number because that's what a douche would do. But you want to make clear you felt something if it was real, and it may not have been. Or is it B? Almost 50%, which is roughly the percent of the voting age population currently running for president in the Democratic primary. <laughs> or is it C? Almost 70%, which is also what many economists believe to be the optimal tax rate for the wealthy. Not a joke, I guess, but still, fuck you, fat cats. <laughs> or, or is it D? Almost 80%, which is also the percent chance you're going to hear them play a Bruno Mars song when you're at TJ Maxx. <laughs> What do you think? Hmm. I'll say C, but I love Bruno Mars. <laughs> and TJ Maxx. You you listen, we all love TJ Maxx. <laughs> Which was the right answer. You got it wrong. Oh. <laughs> you know what? Don't follow some people sometimes, you know? <laughs> listen in here. Christina, trust this. 
<laughs> Question four. All, the all of the following policy positions are considered too extreme for most Republicans. Which of those positions is at over 50% approval amongst voters? Is it A? All gun buyers must pass a background check, as opposed to our current system, where gun buyers are exempt if they know a guy. Or is it B? Wealthy people should pay more in taxes, which is weird because I'd have thought that more than half of the population would be wealthy by now. Don't they keep telling us the economy's good? Or is it C? Citizens United was a bad core decision for the country, but to be fair, some people were excluded from the opinion polls, namely corporations. Or is it D? Economic inequality is a big problem in America. Even billionaires agree. A conclusion they've reached over dinner at that resort where you hunt teachers who get to cancel their student debt if they survive the weekend. <laughs> I don't think it should be allowed, but it, was, but it was in the Republican tax bill, so. A. It, it's all of the above. Oh, I, but, well, you but, didn't give me that choice. It's true, you did not give her that I choice. I didn't give you the choice, it was sort of a trick. All of the above. Well, okay, you got it. Christina, you've won the game. And a parachute gift card. Thank you for playing. Democrats can't win with them. Actually, maybe can win without them. Weird. Why? Seems like we should figure this out. When we come back, our interview with Stacey Stanford. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Here, our waters are splashing and rejuvenating. Our history is for seeing and experiencing. Our theme parks are for riding and sometimes flying. And our great outdoors are yours for exploring and restoring. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule Damn. is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. You know, you know, you know. Have you been able to this. squeeze that special thing into your schedule, John? Yeah, that's. I think it's thanks to therapy. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. Mm -hmm. More time for you. I. Uh, you know, because we've been doing what a weekday, mm -hmm. I actually put that in my therapy spot. You know, I, I replaced therapy with doing an extra podcast. Mm. It was a huge mistake. So uh, what do you spend time doing at therapy now? Well, now I brought therapy back. I added okay, therapy good, back good. to another time because uh, it turns out talking. That's going to make the jokes better. <laughs> well, it's really going to make things better for the team. <laughs> <laughs> if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and Suited to your schedule, just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA.
Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. She's an activist who's working to expand Medicaid in Utah. Currently, she's a health policy analyst for the Utah Health Policy Project, which advocates on behalf of of the uninsured and underserved, please welcome Stacy Sanford. <laughs> Stacy, thank you so much for being here with us tonight. Thank you for having me. I want to start with your personal story because it's what got you deeply involved in the issue of healthcare. In 2010, you were in a car accident and you couldn't go to work anymore. You lost your insurance. What happened? Yeah, I mean, right when I needed healthcare the most is when I didn't have access to it. I had a barrage of new scary symptoms that were disorienting and painful and I lost my job, I lost my health insurance and realized very quickly I was not the only one in that situation. And so you, were, you thought you'd be eligible for Medicaid? Yeah, you know, I knew that down the road, I was looking forward to the ACA 2014, that expansion would be implemented, and I would finally have access. And then the Supreme Court in 2012 said that it was optional, and it became a real partisan dividing line. And Utah opted year after year after year against it. And how many people in Utah were in your situation who fell in that Medicaid insurance gap? It depends on the numbers that you look at, but between 150,000 is the number that we campaigned on. And so there's a lot of people in that situation. What, I mean, to give people some context here, the federal government was giving, as part of the Affordable Care Act, free money to states like Utah to cover, to provide health insurance for the uninsured in the state. And Utah, like many states with Republican governments, refused that free money, which is a first in the history of politics. And <laughs> what reasons did the politicians in Utah give for doing that? There was a lot of excuses um, that the funding would go away down the road, that the administration, a, a future administration, would just decide that they would no longer fund it and Utah would be left holding the bag and worried about a lot of runaway costs, about people signing up that, that wouldn't need it or too many... It was politics. But right? it was ideological. Yeah. I mean, it comes down to an ideological divide, not a financial divide. So let's flash forward to 2018. By this time, you're working for the Utah Health Policy Project to pass the Medicaid expansion through ballot initiative. Tell us about what Prop 3 does and who it impacts. Yeah, so Proposition 3 was a simple, clean Medicaid expansion as called for under the Affordable Care Act. So it covers up to 
they, they use the federal poverty line as a marker. So it's 138% of the poverty line. But in reality, that's an individual earning only up to $1,400 a month. It's not much. And so we would expand coverage to people in that low income bracket. And then we also provided a funding mechanism, which is so key that Utahns are so compassionate. They wanted to provide health care for their neighbors, but they also voted to pay for that health care. And... So... Utah isn't really a ballot initiative state, right? I think the last time you passed one was 2007. And it's a red state, as we've discussed here. So it's a huge uphill battle. As you were campaigning for this, how did you go about convincing you know, Republicans in Utah to support your initiative? I think that it comes down to a real simple moral argument where it was an extra penny on a movie ticket is how much we were increasing the non-food sales tax. Just a minuscule increase out of the pocketbook of most Utahns to provide health care to people who desperately need it. So elevating those personal stories, people like myself that were disabled in everyday life, using a wheelchair, bedridden, but the government didn't consider me disabled enough to earn and deserve that health care. Everybody in that income bracket has a healthcare need and a healthcare story, and we tapped into that. How how did you become involved with the Utah Health Policy? How did you become an activist on this issue? I was really excited about the ACA. I read the whole 900-page ball of wax. <laughs> and I Which was, puts you ahead of a lot of members of Congress. Yeah, so, yeah. most of them, most yes. of them. Yeah. And it started selfishly. You know, it started that I needed health care and I couldn't get it. And it did not take long to realize that there were so many other people with chronic illness and disability and kids and horrible situations that couldn't get the health care that they needed. And so I started hearing those stories. I started going to rallies. I started organizing rallies and meeting people. And I climbed my way up at the Utah Health Policy Project. I started as a volunteer and then an intern and part-time. And now they can't get rid of me. So That seems like a good thing. Yes. (laughs) So thanks to your work and many activists like yourself and groups like the Utah Health Policy Project, your proposition passed. But now, we had, we're having, there's a plot twist. And so- Yeah, we got to applaud for about that long. Yes, we got yeah. about five seconds <laughs> yeah. to celebrate. So talk to me about what your state legislature and your government is doing. Oh yeah. So Proposition 3 was a bridge across the coverage gap. That's what we call the people that don't have access without Medicaid expansion, is the coverage gap. So Proposition 3 was a nice, beautiful, shiny bridge across the gap. The legislature tore that down and built a shitty, rickety bridge that has a bunch of broken, missing planks that are leaving people out. And wh- like, how have they structured it? Like, how, how did they specifically weaken your proposal? Yeah, so they cut it down the eligibility level. So instead of being able to earn $1,400 a month, the cutoff is about $1,000 a month, which leaves out about half the people who would have been eligible. So they can go on the Affordable Care Act, but there's a limited enrollment period. They're locked out, and then once they get on, they still have to pay for co-pays and things like that. 
They also added a couple different caps, so a cap on enrollment, a limit on the number of people who can sign up, that they can decide to implement whenever they decide it's no longer practicable to provide the care. They put, added a cap on the money we receive from the federal government, again, turning down free money, but it doesn't limit the state's responsibility. So in exchange, they're allowed to cut program, to cut services, and do a bunch of dangerous things. It's called a per capita cap. For you following along at home, that might sound familiar, because they tried that in 2017 as part of the ACA repeal. They failed through Congress, and now Utah is trying to lead the charge to do this on a state-by-state -state basis. And then they're adding red tape barriers like a work reporting requirement, which among other things require somebody to fill out 48 job applications to get and keep their Medicaid. So we, we have seen Republican state governments take a similar response to progressive ballot initiatives that passed. You had the governor of Maine refusing to implement a similar Medicaid expansion. You have state legislature in Florida rolling back the, a ballot proposition that expanded voting rights to ex-felons. How, how are the state, how do, like, what is the reaction among the people of Utah who voted for this initiative to see this very explicit and cynical undermining of democracy? It's been really hard. I mean, people came out and they voted and they campaigned and they sold their Republican neighbors and moms on this, and it's really hard. But because of the wonky process we're in, we actually have the ball back in our court now, and we're going through this waiver process. And so they stole our ball in January, and now we have it back. And everybody can submit public comment to speak out against these changes. And we've seen changes overturned in court in Arkansas and Kentucky through legal challenge. So y'all are Utahns in the crowd. You at home, it doesn't matter where you are. You can go to healthpolicyproject.org and check three boxes. That goes to the federal government. And we can use that in court to get back to where we need to be with a full Medicaid expansion. And for our listeners at home who are not Utahns? Is that how you say that? Utahns, yes. That was, I saw that word and I thought that was be too hard to pronounce. So thank you for that. <laughs> but so for our listeners at home, are there ways in which they can help, you know, either by volunteering or financially supporting your organization, your effort? I mean, yeah, healthpolicyproject.org, there's a donation thing there. But honestly, you don't have to be in Utah to comment. It's a federal issue oh, because Utah is the first knocking on the door. This is coming to a state near you if Utah gets approval. This is not, this is just starting these harmful changes nationwide. It doesn't end here. So last question for you. Your story for, of what you've done here and your path to an activist is so inspiring. What advice would you give to people out there who want to become involved in their communities as activists to try to affect change? You've got to demand a seat at the table. I mean, they don't, they didn't want to listen to, I called myself the sad sick girl for so long because it felt like it was such a pity thing. Okay, well, listen to Stacy. She's sad and pathetic. But but now look at me, you know, I'm in a position of power now. I have the mic.
And if we're going to create any kind of effective health policy, it has to begin, end, and center around sick people and disabled people and people who have health care needs. And any other issue, immigration has to center on immigrants and racial issues need to focus on people of color. And we need to make sure that you get yourself a seat at the table so that your voice can be heard on these important issues. Well, that was perfectly said. Stacey, thank you so much. Please give it up for Stacey. Thank you so much, Salt Lake City. You guys were fantastic. Thank you, Stacey Stanford, for joining us. We'll come back to Utah soon. We love you guys. Thank you. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brand Spark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated.